Our text, we have two. They're in First and Second Timothy. So I'll read First Timothy 6:12 and Second Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of life, this life in which we share existence with one another, but most importantly with you. And we thank you, Lord, that this life now is eternal, that we will live with you forever. We give you thanks for this promise and for this truth. In Christ's name, amen. So this is the spiritual warfare series. Uh, this is the fourth of the messages, the fourth and last. It started with know your enemy. And so Satan and his demons hate humans. They especially hate Christian humans. And they heavily bias the world systems against Christians. Our own hearts serve as outposts for them. And that's probably the saddest part of all of this. And that is if we let them. Next was master your weaponry. And so we wear armor provided to us by God for defense to protect us from temptation, to protect us from attack by demons. We use the power of the sword, the word of God, and prayer and fasting to defend ourselves also and to go on the, the offensive against Satan's kingdom. Last week, we learned of engaging our allies. Our allies closely correlate with our enemies. Our allies are in heaven. We have God the Father on his throne, Jesus Christ at his right hand. We have the angels that come and go to do his bidding. And we have the church triumphant all of those who have gone on before us and have entered into heaven. On earth, we have, of course, the church of which we are a part. This is the church militant. We have angels ministering in our midst. And in our hearts, we again have God, God the Holy Spirit, Christ indwelling us. And so we have all the strength we need through God in order to overcome the evil one in our hearts, in our culture. Today we combine these in order to talk about this embrace your battle. When I choose sermon titles, I can take a long time. Sometimes I apologize to Gary because I've been way late in getting him a title and a text. And so when I choose titles, though, of sermons, I'm essentially choosing a destination. I'm choosing a text and a title that I believe will get us to a particular place. And that title serves to guide me as I kind of get lost in my studies and sometimes in my presentation here. 
And so it's important. The titles, I think, are important. I don't know if most pastors take a lot of time to pick their titles, but I know I do. And so each of the titles that I chose was unique. All four messages had one word in common right in the middle of them, your. Instead of using the innocuous word the, I specifically wanted you each to think about it as your. Your enemy, your weaponry, your allies, your battle. And so if you didn't catch that, if it wasn't obvious enough, I'm telling you now, that's why I chose that word. It's important. That's an important word. The enemies, the weapons, the allies we speak of are unique to each of us. My enemies are not your enemies. They're slightly different. My weapons, even though we call them by the same names, are different than yours. And what's really, I think, most astounding about this is that the armor you put on every day is different. And so you can be putting on God's armor as He wants you to do, or you might not be. You might be making some reasonable facsimile of a breastplate that day or a sword. And so obviously we all want to use what God equips us with, but yet we each have to make it our own. We're each unique in this regard. And that's why all of this is personalized. It's all about you as individuals. And this is a good thing. You know, it's not wrong to view Christianity from a personal perspective. I remember a few years ago, I went to Scripture wanting to prove the point that Jesus is not my personal Savior. That sentence offended me. And yet I found, to my astonishment, that that's exactly what Jesus calls himself. He is my personal Savior. And so then I could relax and rest in that term and not be offended when I heard it so much because Christ wants us to personalize Christianity, and He is Christianity. Now, how you care for your armor, how you choose to wear your armor is unique to you, and so you ought to do it well, and yet all of us can improve in this regard. We all must improve in this regard. In a sense, that's what sanctification is. It's our improving in what God has given us with to protect ourselves from Satan's attacks. Let's look at 2 Timothy. That was the uh, second text that I read. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. This is odd to hear Paul writing this here because he's not about to die. He's not going to die a minute or an hour or even a week or maybe even months later. And yet we read it as his final words. Second Timothy was the last letter he wrote. And so we can read this as his final words. It reads like he's at death's door. He's speaking of everything that he's done is in the past tense, that he's already accomplished these things. And it is presumptuous on his part, perhaps, to say it like this. Could that be? Could Paul, the great apostle, have spoken these words presumptuously? I don't think so. And yet, he's not yet dead, 
And yet he thanks God that he has succeeded. He's fought the good fight. And I believe he dares say that because God has been with him through all of these many years, decades, and he knows he's going to be with him to the end. The only way that that would change is if he himself changed it, and he wasn't going to allow that to happen. He was not going to abandon God, and he knew God was not going to abandon him. And so he could speak these bold, bold words as he's entering into, in, into his final year or two of life. This phrase you will recognize, most of you, it's in our popular culture, and it is termed finishing well. This is a phrase that describes Christians who are, have been Christians a long time. They're getting older. They're entering into their, their elderly years, and so they don't know when God will take them home. And so the phrase is finishing well. Will we as Christians finish out our Christian life well, or will we not? This has been around for a long time. I saw articles from the 90s that used this phrase. I found one uh, printed by the Navigators in 2006 that is excellent in my opinion, and I'll give you seven aspects of what this article said finishing well entails. First, intimacy with Christ. Like I said, Christianity is at heart a personal relationship with God through the man, Jesus Christ. He promises to come into us and to dwell in us. He sends His Holy Spirit to fill us with love for Him, with a desire to be obedient to Him. Anybody that thinks Christianity is only an objective religion, like many other of the world religions are, is wrong. The second point, fidelity in spiritual disciplines, faithfulness in spiritual disciplines, such as Bible reading, praying, having devotions, and mostly living in obedience to Christian life, meaning that you keep short accounts with God in terms of your sins. You repent often. You keep short accounts with your Christian friends. If you sin against them, you repent, and you ask them for forgiveness. If they sin against you, you gently confront them, and you point out their error, and you ask them to restore the relationship that they've broken. Number three, a biblical perspective on life. In other words, Christians don't live like the world. They don't enter into retirement counting out how many um, golf games they can get in before they die or are too weak to golf anymore. This is a way of viewing the world through material eyes, through the eyes of a person who doesn't realize that they've been in a battle all their life, doesn't realize that they owe God their allegiance, doesn't realize that there is not the word retire in the Bible. So see, we can enter into a materialistic way of viewing this world. And sadly, we see Christians that do. We know Christians that do. And so we must shun that. We must refrain from doing that. Yes, we're in the world. Yes, we need stuff. But let's not have that stuff be our purpose for being. Life is not like that for us. Life is very different. 
The fourth is to finish well, you are to cultivate a humble and obedient spirit. And sadly, we see some Christians as they grow older, they become more and more ornery, more and more self-centered, more difficult to deal with. They're giving up the battle. They feel they've earned the right to begin treating other people badly. They've endured enough in this world. They've carried their cross far enough. They've dropped it, and they're letting you know they're dropping it. They're just going to do what they want, and you have to accept that. That is not a person who's finishing well. They're finishing very badly. The fifth, a sense of personal calling. And this one is difficult because as people get older and their friends start dying off, their loved ones die off, their mate perhaps dies off, you can get lost. Your identity is in flux during these changes, these huge changes. And you might not seek a new identity. You just kind of want to be left alone. And that's not living a Christian life. That's not finishing well. God is keeping you alive for a purpose. You don't just live to breathe and eat. You live to do God's work. So what is it that you're going to do? What is it that God is calling you to do? I don't care how old you are. I don't care how infirm you are. You have a responsibility to serve God. Sixth, healthy relationships. Again, you're getting older, and the tendency, if you don't fight against it, is to feel that you've earned your space. You've earned your spurs. You can afford to be selfish self-centered, and this is not right, which leads to the seventh point, investment in the lives of others. Regardless of how old you are, as you mature through life, and if you want to finish well, you are engaged with others. You are seeking to influence them, and you are allowing them to influence you. We are social beings. I don't care how introverted you are, you need people. And you ought not isolate yourself from people, or you will become more and more hardened and, most likely, more and more sinful. And you don't want that. That's not good. So that's the seven points from that article on finishing well, and I think they're all excellent. Not all people finish well. In August of 2019, a year and a half ago, it was the same month we celebrated the 20-year reunion of Dominion. Um, I preached a sermon called Leadership Succession, very tactlessly while Phil was in the hospital. And uh, I shared a few stories of, of uh, people that did not finish well. One, I'll just bring one to mind, and this was a king by the name of Joash, a king of Judah. Joash was the little boy that was saved by one of David Dykstra's daughters, if you can imagine that. <laughs> Jehoshaphat saved this little infant boy. And then the high priest, Jehoiada, hid him for six years from his own grandmother, who had killed all of his siblings, restored him to the throne. Now, fast forward about 35, 40 years. Joash, at the behest of the elders of, of Jerusalem, has abandoned worship of God. The high priest, Zedekiah, Jehoiada's son, confronts him on this, and he has him stoned. 
he stones the son of the man that had saved his life as an infant. It's just a sad, sad story where someone did not finish well at all. And the Bible is filled with people who do poorly. Solomon, another example, did very poorly at the end of his life, did not finish well. Recent weeks, we've seen another one not finish well. Last Sunday, a lady came up to Phil and me and asked if we'd read much about what happened with the Ravi Zacharias incident. We said no. And so Wednesday, I happened to look at MeWe, and I dropped Facebook a few weeks ago, and now on MeWe I have one fairly active friend that's always posting articles, and there was one she posted by Randy Alcorn, and it had to do with the Ravi Zacharias incident. And so I read his blog post, and then I read his other five blog posts, as well as this 12-page report concerning this scandal. Now, Many of you, some of you might not know Ravi Zacharias, might not have been too aware of his ministry, so let me just give you a thumbnail sketch. Indian man, born in India, at 17, he attempted suicide. While recovering from that attempt, he came to the, to the Lord, he came to faith. Emigrated to Canada, became at a very young age, a very powerful preacher and evangelist, the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance uh, sent him to Vietnam, uh, sent him to Cambodia. Uh, eventually, his skills were even recognized by Billy Graham, and he had him be the keynote speaker at a conference over in Amsterdam for uh, men such as himself, these evangelistic uh, preachers that are all around the world. He wanted to specialize in Christian ministry, and so he became a Christian apologist, and he was probably the most prolific Christian apologist, the most well-known of our generation of the last 30, 40 years. At the height of his ministry, he founded this ministry in 1984. At the height of his ministry, just in recent years, they've had as many as 100 of these men out all over the world uh, lecturing, debating atheists, um, presenting the gospel. The a catchphrase for his organization, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, was leading thinkers to believe and believers to think. He just died last May. He was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer in March of last year, and then he died two months later. And then a few months later, this article came out in Christianity Today, where three women had come forward who were fed up to hear with him being eulogized as he had been. And they had credible stories that he had molested them. So his ministry, um, to their credit, run by his, one of his daughters, sanctioned an independent investigation in October. Already by December they had preliminary results and then their report was just published February 11th. And they found significant evidence in Ravi Zacharias's life of sexual misconduct. That's how they put it. Now, when you read this, much of it is very familiar if you've ever read about other high-profile Christians flaming out. Abuse of privilege, rejection of wise counsel, angry reactions to staff requests to come clean, blanket denials, and then accusing the accuser. I didn't do this. You're trying to get me. Well, the woman I'm going to refer to in this next paragraph 
was the one woman that in this report, they, to their satisfaction, proved that he had been in an adulterous relationship with for a while. And this is uh, alluding to this woman. Mr. Zacharias used religious expressions to gain compliance as she was raised to be a person of faith. She reported that he made her pray with him to thank God for the opportunity they both received. She said he called her his reward for living a life of service to God, and he referenced the godly men in the Bible with more than one wife. She said he warned her never to speak out against him or she'd be responsible for the loss of millions of souls. After reading this report, this blog, other things, I came away uh, firmly convinced that Ravi Zacharias was a sexual predator. And he used charm and he used his godly reputation and character to specifically target vulnerable Christian women. All of this was under the guise of getting massages from licensed massage therapists. He supposedly had back pain all of his life, and he sought therapy through these therapists. He would gain their trust. He would ask them all these probing questions, who they are, what their background is, um, what's their financial status, and then, once he'd established a, an illicit relationship with them of some sort, he would extort compliance from them through these intimidation techniques. Hundreds of women. It's shocking. He texted with hundreds of these massage therapists. It's like he went down two paths with each, with each one. It's as if he did not want to develop a relationship with some, and so it was all above board. These women wouldn't have suspected anything was wrong. And yet with a whole other side of them, he attempted to develop relationships with them. This book is perhaps familiar to many of you. The, the second chapter, the very first chapter in which Thomas Brooks starts explaining Satan's devices, this is entitled, Satan's Devices to Draw the Soul to Sin. We read this, device number two. By painting sin with virtue's colors, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it, and therefore he presents it unto us, not in its own proper colors, but painted and gilded over with the name and show of virtue, that we may the more easily be overcome by it and take the more pleasure in committing of it. And this is remedy number two that the more sin is painted forth under the color of virtue, the more dangerous it is to the souls of men. This we see evident in these days. Now, this is in the 1600s. By those very many souls that are turned out of the way that is holy, and in which their souls have had sweet and glorious communion with God, into ways of highest vanity and folly, by Satan's neat coloring over of sin and painting forth vice, under the name and color of virtue. This is so notoriously known that I need but name it. Randy Alcorn in this blog series got a lot, a lot of pushback. 
a lot of his readers who are supposedly Christian criticized him very, very bluntly, saying that he was dragging Christ's name through the church by what he was doing, that he was participating in cancel culture by what he was doing. And Randy Elkhorn is no coward when it comes to being out on the front lines and facing down his opponents. And so he steadily refuted each of these critics in his next blog post, which continued, I, I highly advise you to read them. They're very good. And it, it doesn't go into sensationalistic detail, but he just does caution us that we as the church need to understand what happened, how this could have happened. We have to learn from this because this was a calculated self-delusion that stupefies, stupefies the mind. How could this man have done this for so long? He did it at least eight to ten years and maybe longer. I'll read 1 Corinthians starting at chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is why we, above all, have to dig into such a spectacular failure of a man who we believed to have been a Christian, whether he really was, only God knows, of course. We must hold one another accountable to understanding this and not sweeping it under the rug. This uh, sermon series is entitled Spiritual Warfare. And Ravi Zacharias, even though he led a huge organization that brought in $34 million annually, that I'm sure has many, many devoted faithful Christians in it, Ravi had given up spiritual warfare. He rationalized it away. He neglected using his armor, or if he did use his armor, he even used it to evil ends. Proverbs 34, starting at verse 30, I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding, and there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come upon like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This is speaking of earthly poverty perhaps, but you also see the metaphor here. This could easily be speaking to spiritual poverty. Neglecting spiritual duty leads to spiritual poverty. It is a spiritual law. Ravi knew the Bible. He knew it well. This is a quote. You can go out and find these popular quotes by any famous person. 
And so this was one of his quotes on a site that I was on. Pleasure without God, without the sacred boundaries, will leave you emptier than before. This is biblical truth. This is experiential truth. The loneliest people in the world are among the wealthiest and most famous who found no boundaries within which to live. These were his own words. He didn't know his enemy, the old man within him, nearly as well as he should have. He didn't regard that old man with the respect and the suspicion that he should have. He didn't value his allies and rely upon them as he could have and as he should have, especially as a world-famous celebrity Christian. He didn't love his God nearly as much as he thought he did, nearly as much as he convinced even those closest to him that he did. Now, let's examine failures in the light of the armor that we discussed when we talked about weaponry. First, belt of truth. He did what Paul accuses unbelievers of doing in Romans 1. He exchanged the truth of God for the lie. He selectively only wore that belt of truth. The fact that he was a Christian apologist, a world-renowned, the world-renowned Christian apologist, who stands for truth, is what is most upsetting about this. I mean, of course, what he did, too, I mean, that, that goes beyond the pale. And yet, in terms of harming Christianity, Satan and his demons are partying hard right now. They're having a really good year. Breastplate of righteousness. He considered that all of his prior decades of service had essentially put him into a position in which he had absolutely no risk. It's crazy. He earned the right to sin. That's pretty much what he prayed with that woman, thanking God for the opportunity that they had to indulge in this affair. Third, shoes of the gospel of peace. When I talked about the shoes of the gospel of peace, that's how an evangelist is to go out into a hostile world, bringing the love of God, bringing the peace of God. And he was out there targeting the most vulnerable female Christians he could find. It's one thing when these high-profile pastors fail, and here they were soliciting a prostitute or something like that, but he targeted Christian women. It's just reprehensible. It's thoroughly disgusting. Helmet of salvation. The helmet protects your head. The helmet protects your mind. He refused to do any of that, and yet here he was debating atheists for years while he's carrying on this illicit lifestyle. Shield of faith. Not only did he not protect against the fiery darts of Satan, he welcomed them as a good in his life and in the lives of these women that he was meeting with. And prayer. He actually had this woman pray thanks to God for what they were enjoying. And that is the armor. What about allies? 
Obviously, he quenched the Holy Spirit within him to indulge in sin as he did. Instead, he allowed the old man to rule, to run rampant, but not run rampant. He was very secretive. He hid this from so many people that were very, very close to him that didn't know what was happening. Paul tells us, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And that's all Ravi Zacharias was doing for 10 or 15 years, was making provision for the flesh. He had his own phones apart from the ministry. He has his own travel schedule, his own female masseuse that would travel with him. He had his own apartment, two of them in Bangkok, Thailand, where he would retreat supposedly to have this quiet time to write his books. And he would. Some of the books that he wrote were during this period. He would write during the day, and then he would have these liaisons in the evening hours. High-level staff member once asked him about the propriety of traveling with a female masseuse, and Ravi came unglued, and he banished the man, basically gave him a different job way out of his sight. He no longer trusted him to be with him. He was sent to Siberia, a co-worker said. Now, let's turn away from Ravi. Let's talk about Paul. In what I'd read, Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. In Philippians 3, he had said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. He was doing both of those. And I talked earlier about how he could say without presumption that he was going to finish well because he knew God would help him finish well. He was sold out to God. In your handout, you see an illustration on the back. And this is an illustration of Paul at the top of this, right above the sword, where his breastplate is being returned to him as a crown. We wear a breastplate of righteousness on the earth in the church militant. We wear a crown of righteousness in heaven as part of the church triumphant. We must remember who we are who we serve, and why it's important that we fight all the time. We must fight all the time. In 1 Timothy, the first text that I read, in his admonition to Timothy, he says this in 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We grow weary of fighting this spiritual battle. We do. And if we're honest to ourselves and one another, we admit that at times we make provision for the flesh. Hopefully, it pains us to do so. Because what happens in some people's lives is they become so good at making provision for the flesh, they don't even think of themselves as doing so. They're delusional. And so I encourage you, do not make provision for the flesh. And you should know what I mean. If you're a serious Christian, you should know what that phrase means. You must turn to allies for help. That's why I asked you a question in your handout. Who is an ally that you will turn to for help? If you are presently making provision for the flesh. Turn to an ally for help. Don't think that you can do it alone, on your own. 
That's what Satan does. Divide us up and conquer us one by one by one, picking us off from the herd. We rationalize our failures one day at a time, one missed prayer meeting, one missed devotion, one skipping of the Bible reading. And pretty soon, we're just blowing through them all, and we don't care. We are living the life of an unbeliever, and we don't care. We're not fighting a spiritual battle anymore. Lay hold on eternal life, Paul told Timothy. Eternal life is not something that awaits us beyond death. Eternal life is now. Eternal life is the moment you recognize that you are a servant of God. And so he's telling him, lay hold of it now. Live for eternal reward now. Walk in the Spirit now. Don't wait until some future time when you think you're going to become holy or righteous. No, no, no. You're to do those things now, in the skin, now. Randy Alcorn's ministry is called Eternal Perspective Ministries, and it's such a, an appropriate name, and it really is that we are to live our lives as Christians with an eternal perspective, not a short-term, not a fleshly perspective, eternal. This is a way of living life. He tells Timothy, you were called, you have confessed, and there are many witnesses. You see how we could twist that and say that Paul is trying to bring guilt into Timothy's life? Ah, that old man's always telling me what to do. That's how Satan will have you twist it. When you're receiving sound advice from a more mature Christian than you, you will twist it. And that is what you have to recognize is not maintaining an eternal perspective. Recognize that in your heart. When you feel the urge to rebuff the advice of some mature Christian who's bringing a very mild rebuke into your life, watch yourself because you're about to enter into a path that can lead to your destruction. Each of these statements from Paul is a solemn reminder to Timothy to fight, that there is something worth fighting for and every day you have to do it. You can't take days off. That doesn't help. Your rest has to be as they rested when they're building the wall. You rest with your sword in your hand. You go to your allies for comfort, for security, for safety, for nurturing, for, for healing. I've got to tell a story. I don't think I've told this one from the pulpit before. It's near and dear to my heart. When I went into boot camp, it's just like you see in the movies. They get you off this bus, you're dressed in your civilian clothes, they tell you to stand on the yellow footprints, you run over there. Within a couple days, your head is shaved, you're standing there in these crumpled khakis, you've got these boots on that are uncomfortable, and they teach you how to form up, to get into formation. And so you form up, they have you about uh, you turn to your right, right face. Then they say, march. They have given you no instructions at this point. They only tell you which foot to step off with. And so we're like slinkies. I mean, all the newbies are in this one mess hall, and they march you over there, and you look pitiful, and you slinky away to your barracks, and you slinky back. They make you want 
to know how to march because you are an embarrassment to yourself and everybody else on that base. And, and they are good at this. They've been doing this for a long time. Fast forward eight weeks. We all know how to march. We've been doing it for weeks now. We know all the commands, even the obliques that are rarely used. And so we can march. We can respond to the drill instructor's commands. Our junior drill instructor probably didn't know how to march as well as we did. He was still kind of reading the cards, trying to figure out how to give us commands. Well, but did we march well every time we went out, though? No, no. We would walk if we could get away with it. See, marching and walking are two different things. I don't know if you know that, but I'm here to tell you, when you march, you set your feet down. Boom, 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 boom. Left, right, left, right. They don't say that just to remind you which foot is to go down. They want you slamming your boots down to the ground. And when you march properly, it's pretty impressive. But we seldom impressed our drill instructors. We were old hands at this now. We're no longer embarrassed to walk. We, we're, we're relatively in time. We're making relatively noise. Well, one day, after we'd been there eight weeks and we only have a couple weeks left, we went to a special event and we get, got to watch the Marine Corps Silent Drill Team perform. Who has ever seen the Marine Corps Silent Drill Team perform? Oh, you've all missed out. So, all these men, a couple dozen men in dress blues, march out onto this field. You never hear a word. You only hear them marching. They march out onto this field. They've got these M1 rifles that are very loud, very shiny, very cool. And silently, with just the main guy issuing commands that are only done with sight, these men all start throwing these rifles around. And they form waves, all of them. They're, they're up in the air. They're landing in the other guy's lap. One guy's catching it. It's beautiful. It's remarkable. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And here I am. I'm 18. I'm watching this. And then we march away. We're going back to the We're only going back to the barracks. It's not a big deal. But we are slamming. We are slamming those boots down. We are impressive. All of us, eyes front, we are serious. I mean, we remember now, we joined the Marine Corps. We are recruits. We're on our way to becoming Marines. This is really cool. But for so long, for days, for weeks, we'd forgotten who we were, who we were becoming. And yet, watching those men perform those incredible feats reminded us we were Marines. And so, we're walking along and we hear some uh, officer call out to our DI, looking sharp there, Sergeant. And I don't think any of us even batted an eye. We're all so serious because when you're marching, that's what you do. You don't pay attention to these distractions. You focus. You do what it is that you're called to do. So see, the reason I use this illustration, it's not just a story, it's an illustration. We are all Christians, we are soldiers, but we forget from day to day. We forget how important that is, how different we should be, how privileged we are. And so we just slack off. We stop doing our duty. We stop doing the needful. We just think God is all-powerful. Let God do it. I don't need to do it. I'm just this little weak human. But God requires that you do it. That's why he's enlisted you in his army. And so 
Remember who you are. If you're a Christian, then serve God. Remember each day that it's special. You live a privileged existence. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your love and your provision for us that can protect us from evil, all evil, if only we will do what it is that you've commanded us to do. And so we do pray, Father, that you would awaken us to the battle that we're in and awaken us to the army that we're in, that we would recognize that we have every reason to be good soldiers, to serve out our time on this earth faithfully, to make you proud of us, to seek to do all to please you. We thank you now, and we ask you to be with us, to bless our bodies uh, to the use in your kingdom. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.